is Cassie, and welcome to the official podcast for the Network for Social Democracy in Asia, where we break down social and political issues and discuss progressive policies through the lenses of human rights, equality, and justice. You can listen to the podcast on Anchor.fm, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, and Radio Public. And welcome back to the Sock Dem Asia podcast. My name is Cassie. I am your host and I'm very excited for today's episode where we will be doing something like a catch-up episode, checking in on the state of politics, specifically populism and democracy in a mostly post-Trump present COVID-19 world. Our guest for today is Joshua Kurlantzik. He is the Senior Fellow for Southeast Asia at the Council on Foreign Relations. He was previously a visiting scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, a fellow at the University of Southern California Center on Public Diplomacy, and a fellow at the Pacific Council on International Policy. He is a prolific writer with many titles across different publications and is currently focused on China's relations with Southeast Asia and China's approach to soft and sharp power and issues related to the rise of global populism, populism in Asia, and the impact of COVID-19 on illiberal populism and political freedom overall. His works can be accessed on the Council on Foreign Relations page and his book, A Great Place to Have a War, America in Laos, and the Birth of a Military CIA is available via major booksellers. Josh, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Oh, yes. So, very, very long CV, many things that you've done, and quite a few concepts that I'm sure our audience would be very interested to learn more about. So the assumption that we're going into is that we have like a young audience who are getting a sense of what's going on through the news but would like to understand it more. So the work that you've done about global populism, illiberal populism, would it be okay that before we jump into the more current events part of the podcast. Could you tell us a little bit about what those concepts are? Sure. Um, the, the idea of populism has sort of changed over time. I mean, traditionally, the idea originally came up in the 19th century, in the, in the late 1800s in the United States, a group of people who formed a populist movement, which was a, a movement of, of, of people to sort of fight against elites. Um, there, there are a number of art, sort of arcane historical issues that aren't that relevant now, but the, the concept of sort of fighting against elites, fighting for um, a, a more fair and just economic society at that time um, in the United States, some of the people involved in the movement also were fighting for sort of more social justice. It originally sort of, the idea came from from that and um, <clears throat> many of those con- the concepts in it, although that actual populist movement never really got that strong, a lot of the ideas in it of sort of the people versus the elites <clears throat> and um, fighting for sort of fair economic justice was embraced um, by American leaders like Franklin Roosevelt, et cetera. Um, eventually, as time goes on, you start to have the con- those original concepts, some of which were, were quite good, and the, the economic populist concepts um, of sort of fighting for economic equality and leveling the economic playing field, fighting for the middle class, fighting for the working class, um, <clears throat> fighting against the idea of an elite monopoly of an economy, et cetera. Those ideas, you still exist sort of in, in, a, in a good way. You can hear them in some of the rhetoric in, in the United States, someone like Bernie Sanders, you can, at his best moments, you could have heard them in 2014 um, from President Joko Widodo, um, some of the good policies that were put into place um, in the 2000s by the Thaksin Shinawat government in Thailand, economic policies like um, universal health care, et cetera, et cetera. But the concept has sort of morphed in more recent years and has become a type of populism that has a potentially quite dangerous, uh, illiberal, in other words, um, in many ways contrary to democratic norms um, in which populism has sort of lost some of that economic aspect and has become an idea in which um, people are defined either by being sort of in the group who are perceived as sort of the true people or the people represented by a certain leader and those who are not. 
And those who are not are vilified, demonized, etc. Those who are not tend to often be, but not always, minorities of some type, uh, not necessarily, but um, also the populist leader in comparison to some of these leaders, these other leaders I've mentioned, like Bernie Sanders or Franklin Roosevelt, who were charismatic, but didn't seek to destroy democracy. A lot of the populist leaders today seek to build a cult of personality around themselves. They seek to destroy the institutions that make up democracy. Um, so they might remove, try to remove justices in the Supreme Court who, of uh, the top court who don't like the way that they rule, or they might shut down prominent television outlets or major online outlets, or they might curtail the freedom, freedom of the press in other ways. Um, they also today's populism tends to have an exclusionary aspect, which, which although women aren't minorities in really in any society numerically, they're tend, not all, but a lot of them tend to be heavily misogynistic. So a lot of the rhetoric and action of the populist leaders today, not all of them, but many of them, as you can guess, uh, there are certainly specific leaders who fit this bill I'm gonna get to in a second, but quite a lot of the, the rhetoric and aura of the populist comes around this aura of a charismatic male, very much machismo leader, mm -hmm. which also includes a fairly significant often amount of misogyny that comes with it. The populist leaders also tend to have built quite strong, not everywhere, but quite strong sort of bonds with their supporters in which the, the bond isn't necessarily really based on a lot of rational um, communication, but it's based on a sort of like an almost charismatic, almost re almost religious sort of appeal. So some of the popular people who would who we would characterize as today would be <clears throat> Jair Bolsonaro, the president of the Philippines, uh, the president of Brazil, Rodrigo Duterte, president of the Philippines, uh, Narendra Modi, prime minister of India, Donald Trump, president of the United States, and quite a few others who are maybe perhaps less well known in, in Asia, but Viktor Orban, <clears throat> prime minister of Hungary and others. Um, almost all of them sort of while some of them actually do pursue policies that are intended to help people like the original economic populists, what characterizes them more is this sort of exclusionary rhetoric, cult of personality, demonization of others, and very much a sort of um, politics of, of the one, um, and not a politics that seeks to sort of institutionalize democracy. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask now, Politics has not always been like this. There haven't been forces in power that seek to tear down democracy itself or that have been overtly misogynistic or even culty. But how do you think it got to this point? Like what caused politics all over the world to shift towards leaders that espouse these beliefs and values? No, that's a great question. Um, well, first of all, I do think that many of these leaders... <clears throat> Um, today draw, I should have said that, one of the things I should have said was that although uh, quite a few of these populists today would be come from what would be considered the more of the right of the political spectrum, it isn't actually true that they're exclusive to that. There are illiberal populists who have sort of undermined democracy in recent years, who have come from the left, the Shinawa families more to the left in Thailand, Hugo Chavez and Nicolas Maduro, who would also fit this characteristic, these qualities in Venezuela are certainly from the left. <clears throat> President of Mexico is from the left. Um, so start, sorry to your question of um, what has caused them so many of these people today. Well, first of all, a lot of the people do draw on traditions within their own political culture that either were expressed not as strongly in the past, and they have become sort of the ultimate expression of that, and they draw on that in the past. Um, they don't come out of nowhere. So like in the United States, the United States does have a long tradition as well as <clears throat> of sort of good um, politics that have pushed for more democracy, et cetera. It also has a fairly strong tradition of um, sort of negative politics, politics of exclusion. There was a, you know, <clears throat> a very long period in the United States in which black people in the South are essentially excluded from, from voting, and it was essentially an authoritarian state in the South. Um, there have been politicians in the United States like Donald Trump before. They never became president, but they were the governor. They made they became governor of Louisiana, governor of Alabama. They rose to a fairly high level. So Donald Trump draws on a lot of those traditions of the past. Similarly, in the Philippines, yes, Rodrigo, Rodrigo Duterte is somewhat unique, but 
his rhetoric um, directly channels um, some of the specific styles of the Marcos era. Some of the sort of advertising and appeal and sort of um, rhetoric on him also ch ch um, channels some of the period of the Estrada period before Estrada was pushed out of power. So he doesn't come from a completely alien tradition. You could say that the same thing um, <clears throat> in some other countries, but I think why, why now so many of these people have come to power is um, several things. One, um, <clears throat> in a lot of countries, people have, or some people have lost faith in both pol politics as a whole. They have lost faith in that democracy is um, A, fairly representing them and B, delivering performance results like a continually better life for people over time, um, social justice, better, <clears throat> um, better social welfare policies, et cetera. Secondly, a lot of the traditional parties, <clears throat> yes, the Philippines party system has historically been a little weaker than some of these other places. But if we talk about some of these other places, the traditional political parties that were longstanding. So <clears throat> for example, in India, the Congress party, which dominated politics for decades and decades, that was the party of <clears throat> Gandhi and Nehru. Mm -hmm. In the United States, the Republican party in Germany, um, the Social Democratic party, these parties have become weaker over time for a variety of reasons. And so that has provided an opportunity for outsiders to come in and capture, um, capture public sentiment. And um, <clears throat> in the last 20 years, it's also just seen across the world, <clears throat> seemingly sort of like one cataclysmic event after another, um, major wars in the Middle East, um, the Iraq war precipitated by a very poor decision by the United States, climate mm -hmm. change, um, a lot of places where people's income wasn't going up, um, a sort of sense that the future isn't getting better for a lot of people. My friend Richard Adari, a well-known Philippine commentator, talks about this a lot in the Philippines that Duterte drew, has drawn a lot on the idea um, of not necessarily the poorest people, but people who are a little bit above board, lower middle class, working class people who thought that their lives was going to be better over time. And even though there was fairly high GDP growth in the, in the Aquino um, government, it didn't necessarily make their lives better. And so they didn't feel like their status had gotten any better. And they looked to someone outside of the political system, even though of course, Duterte comes from a traditional family. He's not really outside the system, but he positions himself. So in all of these places, people are looking for some sort of charismatic leader to solve all of these problems that seem unsolvable to them. Mm -hmm. So this wave that brought all of these leaders to power has been like some years ago already. Like in the Philippines, it happened in 2016. It also happened in 2016 in the States. Um, a lot of the leaders who can be described as illiberal populists, have come to power, like they've been in power for quite a while, that they came to power a while ago. But their popularity still seems to be at a particularly high level or at least a level that baffles their mm -hmm. opponents. Can you give us any insight about why that is? Like you mentioned about how they came to power because people felt like politics wasn't doing any for anything for them in the past. And given the continuous cataclysms, the continuous events that don't seem to be helping people's lives get better, they still manage to stay popular. Why is that? Yeah, again, I mean, that's a really excellent question. I mean, I don't know that I can necessarily answer that in every, in every case. I mean, I think <clears throat> there's a spectrum. I mean, Donald Trump just lost a presidential election. Oh, it's very unusual for an incumbent president of the United States <clears throat> to lose. Um, it hasn't happened <clears throat> before this in, since 1992. So it's it's, and he lost fairly decisively, even though he's now, you know, doing very challenging things. everything. So, yeah. Yeah. But he, he lost quite fairly decisively. And, um, it's, and, um, so there's a spectrum, but of course, Duterte in, in polling in the Philippines enjoys very, very high popularity. Um, and Modi enjoys high popularity. Um, mm -hmm. but they don't all, they haven't all prospering. Bolsonaro's popularity is, is not great, but, um, it's a fair question. So I would say a couple things. Some of the populist leaders are really effective politicians. Um, I mean, I think we have this idea of a pop populist leader that's been um, characterized by Trump, Duterte, and Bolsonaro because those figures are very larger than life. And the image of Trump, Duterte, and Bolsonaro is someone who's sort of a little bit uh, um, unstable, um, a little bit very unpredictable, um, you know, and um, 
charismatic, but not necessarily paying attention to the details of politics. But some of the um, the populist leaders, like specifically Viktor Orban in Hungary and certainly Narendra Modi in, in India, are very effective politicians. And Narendra Modi has, um, besides being a populist, he's built an incredibly powerful political organization. And he, they have some of them, not all of them, but some of them have delivered political results that people like in Hungary and Poland, not Trump, but um, some of them. So they're popular for reasons that are understandable. They have delivered fairly strong economic growth or et cetera. But I think what you're getting at more is this idea of like, why do they remain popular even if they don't deliver good performance? So Trump would be a good example of that. Like, even though Trump lost, he, his popularity ratings are higher than you would expect for someone who really mismanaged the pandemic and has also, because of mismanagement, mismanagement has put the United States in fairly significant economic problems. Um, and you could say the same thing about Bolsonaro too. <clears throat> um, and I think the answer to that is that a lot of the bond, like I said, made between the um, populist leader and their supporters becomes unmoored from the reality that we normally think of, of politics where a politician is elected and they either deliver performance based on some metrics, like the metrics could be, they're usually, we can think of them as economic growth plus people's lives get better or um, they do other things, they, they may, um, pass other bills that people like, they may pursue social programs, people like, they might pursue foreign policies. But these populist supporters become unmoored from their reality. And so they can actually defy the sort of political, normal political laws. Secondly, another thing that populists really do well, and Duterte is a perfect example of this, is they either, they do both things. They destroy the traditional media, who would be the sort of people in place who both, um, investigate and sort of analyze the failings of a government and they develop alternative sources of media. So you may have Duterte supporters who no longer believe that many of the mainstream traditional legacy media outlets in the Philippines offer true information. And the same thing is certainly happening in the United States where Trump has developed a series of um, media outlets, Fox, but also others that sort of pursue a sort of alternative set of realities. And even beyond that, he communicates directly with his supporters via social media and has um, sort of taught them that you can't believe what the traditional media say. So in a normal situation, in a previous situation, if like um, the Philippine Daily Inquirer or Rappler or whatever, or some investigator, uh, PCIJ in the past, did uh, stories about a Philippine president that was really, really, really showed bad things, um, a lot of people would believe that and it might cause a scandal. But when you don't have very many people who believe that, it dilutes the power of the media and the politician is somewhat immune. So they have both things. They have this like incredible bond with their supporters. And they also have convinced a lot of people that basically the traditional news outlets that would sort of tell people essentially, or at least guide them to and to understanding whether the government was performing well or not, are not to be believed. So then you exist in a world where like, it's very hard to, for the people who have, no, have opted out of believing in traditional media, then you're sort of in a fantasy world. Mm -hmm. I actually want to go back to something that you mentioned about how a lot of today's populists actually <clears throat> draw on things from the past, on traditions from the past. So that kind of allows the listener to imagine that we're really just cycling through waves, that there's always going to be a point in the history when this sort of politics is prevalent and then it will taper off only to come back again. Is there, are there any lessons that can be picked up from the populists of the past or from the way their regimes or from the way their terms ended? Yeah, I mean, well, just to, I mean, I think some of the things, the period of the 2010s that led to this is comparable to previous periods, but the people who came to power after the previous period weren't necessarily populist. So like you could compare some of these cataclysmic things to the 1930s, the, the people who came to power who, who were already in power and got more power in the 1930s weren't populists. They, the, 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 the people, many of the people were just outright authoritarians, um, but like uh, Hitler, Stalin, et cetera. Um, Mao, Mao came to power later, but 
so you have had previous periods where um, serious economic problems, cataclysms, a feeling that the, the, your country or the world is like somehow never going to get better is in a dark time, <clears throat> usually brings to power people who offer direct, simple, sort of um, tribalistic solutions. Um, in the 30s and the 40s, they weren't really populists. They were, I mean, there were some populists, but they weren't really populist. Most of them were <clears throat> fascists or authoritarians. Um, but in terms of the populists who have come to power in the past, <clears throat> more recently, like in Latin, populists um, came to power in Latin America in periods of um, <clears throat> economic downturns in the, um, after the 90s, for example, in Argentina, in the early 2000s, populists came to power, or like in more recently in Italy, the Berlusconi was actually one of the first of these waves of sort of modern day liberal populists. Um, they could lose power eventually. Unfortunately, I don't have like a really optimistic scenario to present, but fa fairly often they eventually lose power because despite this sort of unreality <clears throat> that they present to their supporters, eventually they often fail to, to govern well because for several reasons, like they don't really often don't believe in traditional normal expertise, not all of them, but many of them. And, um, they're, they often tend to be highly corrupt <clears throat> and destroying a lot of these sort of independent institutions at first might not necessarily undermine the country's economy or how it's well-being, but often it does, especially if you do things like you undermine the central bank or you play fool around the economy or you put into place economic policies just don't make any sense. So, so like in Italy, a combination of Berlusconi's sort of Eventually, his misgovernance and his corruption, he had a series of sex scandals too, <clears throat> um, led him to lose several times and eventually sort of fade from the, the scene. That, uh, similarly, in Argentina, years and years of sort of economic misgovernment by the Kirchner and Fernandez. Kirchner was the um, <clears throat> leader in Argentina in the early 2000s, and then he passed away, and his wife, Cristina Fernandez, became the leader. Eventually, that misgovernance led to them being ousted from power. But what often happens is that the populists have so undermined democracy that eventually another populist comes to power or even they come back. So it's not like a super optimistic um, long-term scenario. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, but yeah, reality is hardly ever, but yeah, that's on us to make that change. I want to ask a question relating to the answer that you just gave because so you mentioned how it's usually dark times and like cataclysms and bad things happening that help bring these people to power. But you also mentioned that not all of the people in the past who came to power as a result of these events were populists, like some of them were authoritarian, some of them were fascists. But just to help us understand a little bit more about like what they do rather than like, I guess the belief system, but is there anything that these groups from the past who were not necessarily populists that the populists are doing today? Like, for example, like was there like in group out group discrimination, like misogyny, like cultism, anything like that, that was found in the past? Sure. I mean, so I should, uh, many of these, Many of the populists today are illiberal and sort of undermining democracy. Some of them are now verging on outright authoritarian. Um, Victor Orban, Hungary is verging on outright authoritarian. Um, <clears throat> Chavez and then Maduro have now pushed Venezuela to become essentially an authoritarian state with some vestiges of democracy. I mean, I think that some of the things Duterte has done are verging on outright authoritarianism, whether it's not anywhere near like uh, Venezuela. Um, yes, a lot of the sort of, but it's harder in the modern world. It's not impossible, but most of the liberal leaders today, not all of them, but most of these liberal leaders come to power within the constraints of a relatively free system. And then they slowly, slowly sort of like undermine and destroy that system with the tools of the system itself, or mostly with the tools. Um, and Duterte is actually a little bit unusual because Duterte has not only done that, but also overseen massive amount of actual violence. That is actually not that common among the populace today. They tend to undermine the system, but you don't have things like you would have seen in <clears throat> 1930s Soviet Union, or Germany, um, Italy, 
Spain, et cetera. Guterres is actually a little bit unusual in that, in that the war on drugs has led to quite a lot of violence. But um, but yeah, sure, the authoritarians of the past, people who took power in the 30s, the late 20s, 30s, a lot of that sort of era was similarly characterized by, obviously by um, demonizing minority groups, killing minority groups, um, um, rhetoric of exclusion and demonization, very intense machismo and um, misogyny, um, a cult of personality leaders. So there's a lot of parallels, but Duterte is, is um, like I said, fairly unusual. I mean, the Shinawa toxin had his own war on drugs earlier um, in which there was also a fair amount of extrajudicial killing, but most of the liberal populace today don't, although they're, they engage in misogyny, very extreme rhetoric, demonizing, and certainly a lot of very negative things. You don't, at least at this point, you don't see, it's not like the 1930s um, in terms of the, they don't have organized violent groups. Um, most of them go around, um, committing mass by extreme violence. Now in the Philippines, that, that's not necessarily the case, but um, but yeah, the leader, there are some, definitely some stark parallels to the leaders of the 1930s. Okay, so this has been the first part of our podcast episode with Josh Kerlancic on of the Council on Foreign Relations. When we come back, we're going to talk a lot more about the situation worldwide when it comes to populism, how COVID-19 affects these regimes and outlooks for the future. You are listening to the Sockdam Asia podcast and we will be back in a few. And welcome back to the Sockdam Asia podcast. I am your host, Cassie, and we're still in the middle of our episode with Josh Karlancic talking about the state of populism all over the world, democracy, and COVID-19's effects on all of the above. So while we were on break, we had a little bit of banter in the office, and I want to raise a statement to you, and I want to ask your opinion about it. So given all of the things that we've been talking about so far, would it be fair or correct to say that the project of the illiberal populist is to establish authoritarianism with themselves at the head. Like, is that the logical conclusion of all illiberal populists? I don't know if you can say that's the logical conclusion necessarily, but I mean, I think that certainly the, um, you could at least say that a lot of the illiberal, the illiberal populists seek to create a situation in which it's, it's very hard for them to remove them from power, especially the longer they stay in power. They may not seek to create a system that we would call necessarily outright authoritarian, but more like a sort of semi-authoritarian system. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think most of them seek to create a system, you know, like China or <clears throat> Vietnam or, or on an extreme level, like North Korea or something like that. But at least to create a system in which it's very hard to remove them from power um, or in a, in a situation in which it's still difficult for them to actually remain in power either because the institutions are still relatively strong or there are term limits. They seek to create a sort of system in which they can perpetuate their power through their family. <clears throat> and we've seen this quite commonly. With, so if they, if they don't seek to entrench themselves, they seek to entrench their family. So like in Argentina, it was um, first this fellow Kirshner and then his wife. She is now the vice president again. I mean, there's a, certainly, a, Trump had an idea at least of sort of that his family would um, follow him in politics. Maybe they still will, I don't know. It seems like Duterte at least has had some ideas along those lines. Um, the Shinawa family in Thailand had that. So. Um, to an extent, yeah. I mean, the logical end is often that a, sy- a system in which it's very hard to compete the longer it goes on. So like <clears throat> in in uh, Hungary, it went from where it's been going on about 10 years now, so longer than the Philippines or longer than <clears throat> India, where this, the political freedoms became narrower and narrower and narrower. So now it really is essentially an authoritarian state. It's not China, like people there's still some independent press and 
um, still some independent academics and people aren't getting thrown in jail for, you know, saying in their house, I don't like Victor Orban, but it's become essentially an authoritarian system in terms of the politics. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now we're going to get very, very topical. How has COVID affected these regimes? Like, could it be said that this is the crisis that will, that's the best opportunity for them to seize power decisively? Or will it be an opportunity for their opponents to more effectively challenge populist leaders? Well, I think it's both. And it sort of depends on the person and also depends on how well they they manage COVID and also it depends on other factors, including sort of just the luck of the draw. Like for example, um, Donald Trump's administration definitely mismanaged the US response to COVID um, compared to any other country with the health system in the United States, but it also just happened to be an election year. It's possible that, so he just sort of got unlucky um, and that, he did retain a fairly strong amount of support given how poorly they handled COVID, but he still lost probably in large part because of this mismanagement of COVID. It's possible that if it was COVID had happened in 2018, that he, his popularity would have rebounded eventually if we had all had vaccines a few years later. And so there's some luck in it. I mean, but there's been a wide varying, quite a few um, leaders and not only populist leaders, some leaders we would call just outright authoritarian leaders, but have utilized COVID as a, a, which certainly demands, you know, some limitations of freedoms for genuine reasons. Um, Australia, New Zealand, countries that are full democracies have limited freedoms in order for real public health reasons. But certainly a lot of the liberal populist leaders have used COVID as a pretext to crack down on freedoms. Duterte has, Jokowi House. Jokowi is not um, anywhere near as illiberal as Duterte or Bolsonaro or Trump, but he has some some elements of it. Um, but Jokowi House, um, or Orban certainly has. He has essentially instituted emergency rule. The Polish government has. Um, <clears throat> strangely, actually, Trump took the opposite approach and sort of um, not only didn't. Um, try to amass emergency power as he actually seems scared to or resistant to amass more power and let the state governors, you know, the lower level officials in the United States take control, which was part of the problem actually in terms of handling COVID. But yes, quite a few of the, um, the, um, the liberal populist leaders have used COVID as a pretext to crack down further. Um, whether they're poor management of COVID, which a lot of the liberal populist leaders also have managed it poorly. Duterte, Jokowi, Modi, Bolsonaro, Trump, the, um, whether that will affect them, you know, politically depends on whether how strong, whether they have a strong opposition, whether the opposition is, un, is united, um, whether they're able to sort of present their response well to their supporters. In the US, you had a combination of factors. There's an election year, um, Trump had terrible management of COVID. The Democratic Party was fairly united. They selected a candidate who was not particularly charismatic, but he was appealing to a broad number of people. Mm-hmm. Democratic Party, for all its problems, is a fairly strong party establishment. Whereas in the Philippines, yeah, you have Duterte. Uh, I mean, Duterte has not managed COVID particularly well, not as bad as Trump, but but the who exists in opposition to Duterte? There's no strong party system. The tradition has been that the president, after becoming president, parties come to him or, or her. Um, and parties, there are some parties obviously that have been around for a long time, but mm-hmm. parties are fluid. And so there's no unified opposition to Duterte. So there's no, there's, there's no unifi- unified opposition that can present itself. Plus Duterte isn't up for re-election. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly, like in India, Modi has not managed COVID well, but the opposition is completely in chaos. The Congress Party and the other opposition that exists is completely in chaos. So, it dep- yeah, it really depends on the country. Mm-hmm. So, if we were going to put those things down in a checklist, there would be a need for the opposition to get itself together. So, it's not enough for there to be one opposition group, but everyone in opposition to the populist needs to work together. Yeah. 
definitely. They one, of the, one of the key, the critical things that has that happened in the the U.S. election. Oh, like, let's just step back a second. So, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, one of the critical things that happened was that, like, the U.S. Democratic Party is is a fairly diverse party mm-hmm. of people in the Democratic Party who are fairly conservative who would not be in the in a social democratic party by the standards yeah. of Europe or, or Asia, they would really probably be more like in um, um, centrist or even conservative. Yeah, like party. if the US wasn't just a two-party system, yeah. Right, if they weren't a two-party system, you would have Democrats who, who are to the right of Angela Merkel and Boris Johnson. And then you have Democrats like Bernie Sanders or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who in a multi-party system would be well to the left. Like in the German system, they would mm-hmm. be the Greens. They might even be in the left in the German system. Um, so it's a fairly diverse party, but because the party was so opposed to Trump and, um, after the primaries, there was very strong unification and really very little intra-party fighting. So a similar example of that was like in the last French presidential election, eventually it came down to Emmanuel Macron versus Le Pen, who was, um, has not been in power, but probably in power would be in the liberal populace. Mm-hmm. And a lot of French conservatives who don't really like Macron, who weren't really, didn't really support Macron, came out and said, well, we need to support Macron because we don't want Le Pen. But um, so yes, the most important thing is if the populace is to be defeated, everyone across the political spectrum, no matter what their views, left, right, whatever, has to be united against them simply if they believe in democracy. And that's something that I don't think you really see in the Philippines personally. Mm-hmm. That's my opinion. Mm-hmm. All right. So I'm not, no, nothing against Joe Biden at all, but the fact that it was a two-party system meant that it didn't really matter so much that he wasn't all that charismatic or he wasn't the most charismatic person on the stage. But when you look at the situation of other countries, would you say that this would be a requirement? Let's say that the opposition does manage to get itself together. How important is it for, like, what are the qualities that the challenger needs to have in order to appeal to the broadest, pop- the broadest possible voter base that will effectively win them an election? Yeah, I mean... I, I, I was going to say this before to go back. I just wanted to say, make the point about unity. Just to rem, 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 let's just remember that Duterte became president in a multi-candidate race, and in the run-up to the election, had it been narrowed to a two-candidate race, he had someone lost. dropped out, had Grace Poe dropped out, or someone else dropped out, Duterte probably would have lost. So actually, the scenario that I'm talking about in which Everyone who doesn't want in a liberal populist puts aside their own personal desires and comes together and maybe someone has to decide that they're not going to run or whatever. Mm-hmm. That didn't happen in 2016. And as and the direct result of that was Duterte won. Duterte probably would not have won a two-person race. But um being charismatic is always good for politics. It's not like the United States is, diff- is different. I mean, I think um, Barack Obama was incredibly char- charismatic and he had the biggest electoral victory um, in the United States in the last 20 years. It wouldn't have hurt if Joe Biden was more charismatic. That What made him a broadly enough appealing was not that he was uncharismatic, but just that um, he could be seen by enough different categories of people who associate themselves with the Democratic Party to be um, tolerable. But if he was more charismatic, that wouldn't have hurt him. I, I, I think you rarely are hurt for having more charisma, charisma mm-hmm. in politics. Um, but um, I think that um, <clears throat> what we've seen in the last 10 or 15 years is that you can win in politics, but you don't have to be an illiberal populist. Biden's a little bit unique example, so we'll see. But there are people who have won, like Macron, um, uh, who were able to present themselves as outside of the normal politics. 
Often this is a fiction, just as much as it was a fiction that Rodrigo Duterte was some kind of outsider since he came from a traditional, powerful political family. He's no outsider, but and neither is Emmanuel Macron. He is um, an investment banker, wealthy. He had been a minister in the previous socialist government briefly, but he was able to capably present himself as an outsider. And people today seem to have an enormous hunger for an, an outsider. So a charismatic outsider that you can present is um, is is often you know very very appealing. A lot of the appeal of Bernie Sanders. He didn't win the primary in 2020. Didn't win the primary in 2016, but he did very very well um, in 2016. Remains for power. He's not only an outsider. He's been in national politics for 30 years in the United States, and he's been in politics for over 40 years but he's able to present himself as an outsider. And that's just incredibly appealing today with such high levels of popular dissatisfaction with, with sort of traditional politicians. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, I don't know. If, mm-hmm. Sorry, go ahead. I, I don't know if I can specifically say who that would be in the Philippines, mm-hmm. but I'm, it's okay. We don't know either. So don't worry. We're in the same boat in that regard. But like, I want to ask now something relating to like people's dissatisfaction with, the way things have been going. So given that the project of a populist is to undermine democratic institutions, how do we rebuild these institutions? And I also want to add on that we don't want to rebuild these institutions just like they were in the past because that's part of the problem, that the way they were was not working. But how would we go about rebuilding something that is not just back to good but better right well i don't know if i can completely answer that question obviously mm-hmm. if someone had an answer to that they would be it would be uh, you know they would have an answer to quite a lot of the world's problems but um i mean not to be simplistic but <clears throat> the most important first thing to do is to win um mm-hmm. the history of of this a liberal populism in the last 10 or 15 years has been that the more times I mean, and the liberal populist wins a re-election, or in the case of the Philippines, it, since Duterte, I mean, unless Duterte somehow manages to change the constitution, but um, since Duterte can't <clears throat> run again, you could have some other liberal populist. Mm-hmm. You could have your daughter, you could have an outsider figure like Manny Pacquiao, who mm-hmm. in my mind could easily be very similar to Duterte. Um, um, but the more times the a liberal populist is either reelected or a liberal populist is in power, the less chance you have of ever going back. So it is quite important to, in the first election, where you either have a chance to reject the liberal populist or reject liberal populism for them to be rejected. Otherwise, each successive time, it gets harder. So like an example, of this would be Hungary. Russia, Putin isn't a populist, but he has some similarities. So the first time Putin ran for, he was essentially appointed by Boris Yeltsin. Then the first election after that, it wasn't a completely free and fair election, but it was more free and fair than than the next time, than the next time. And to this point now, Putin is just an outright autocrat. You know, dissidents are murdered, people, exiles are murdered, journalists are murdered, there is no real opposition. So the most important thing is at first is to sort of curtail the length of time the liberal populace is in power. But um, I don't know if I can answer that second question that well. I mean, I think it is true that there a lot of the dissatisfaction with democratic institutions and norms has led to liberal populace. It's not, but it also, a lot of it was dissatisfaction with people's economic life and with mm-hmm. things in the world that don't necessarily have to do with democracy mm-hmm. or maybe they have to do with democracy but there are bigger issues like climate change and certainly in places where there has been a liberal populace and then they lose or are defeated it's important to try to take things that were thought of as norms and make them laws mm-hmm. so like in the united states we're now seeing that from the last four years a lot of things that um, people took for granted that would just happen like a good example is <clears throat> the tradition had been that there would be an election and um, they would count up the votes and the, the um, person who lost would eventually like make a speech and concede often the, that night. And then it was sort of a, just a pro forma after that they would 
certify the votes and move, they would have the transition inauguration. But we're, that was a norm. There's no law that says you have to concede. There isn't, a, we're seeing that a lot of the like rules even about elections aren't really rules, they're just norms. So, and we've seen that all like throughout, like in the US, like there was a norm that like, if you nominated a person to be a cabinet secretary and the Senate which is supposed to approve them, rejected them, then they, they couldn't serve. But Trump just was like, he was just like, I don't care. And he just like keep them in office as an acting, um, sorry, we're doing a podcast, I was making a quote mark on my hand, as an acting secretary. Similarly, there was in the US this norm that like, as a president, you had to be transparent about your financial activities, mm -hmm. but it's not a law. So Trump never released his financial information. So I think that one lesson is that a lot of things that were sort of assumed to be norms need to be put into law. But in terms of the general dissatisfaction, I mean, there are broader things that like, I, I'm not in the capable mm -hmm. of addressing, but I mean, in the Philippines, in the US, in many, many places, a lot of the economic growth that was achieved under parties that were nominally liberal democratic, like Aquino's party, you know, wasn't really that broad based and it looked good. And I mean, Aquino was and is a Democrat, a small D Democrat, but ultimately like similarly to the Obama era, Obama is definitely a Democrat, a small D Democrat, like committed to liberal democracy and mm -hmm. did do some good things, but ultimately people thought that he was going to produce more broad-based growth, that he was gonna produce an economic system that was um, fairer, that he was gonna produce a less sort of system, less connect, captured by sort of finance, that he was gonna produce sort of growth that that made younger people feel like they could, they were gonna um, be able to grow up and own their own house and things like that. And and, he, and they didn't. And um, the, I don't have an answer for how that can be solved, but that's obviously like a huge driver, like, in the United States, you know, pe younger people, I'm 45, but people, you know, who are in their 30s or 20s have lived through um, decades of stagnant income and rising inequality, wars, deficits, et cetera. And that's true in a lot of <clears throat> wealthy countries. And it, it's less true in, in developing countries in East Asia where growth has been higher, but it's still true. I mean, um, it's true in the Philippines, it's true in Indonesia, it's true in Thailand. A lot of the growth has still only been captured by a small group of people. So. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I we're actually at the last question of the pod, of our podcast now that I want to ask you. So, given that Joe Biden has won the election in the U.S., putting a stop to the progression of like a populist in power, so you you guys have won the first thing that you have stopped it in its tracks. So he's not going to be in for another term. So, what does this spell for? The wave of populism across the globe, like at like I guess maybe maybe in your informal opinion, does it bode well or does it bode ill for the rest of the world? Like, is this the end or are we just taking a break and we're still very much playing the game? Um, I mean, I can't. I'm, I don't know if I can completely answer that question, but I mean, I think it has some good aspects. I mean, I think that even though the, the U.S.'s sort of democratic example has been badly tarnished, not just by Trump, but just by many other things too, in the last few decades by the Iraq war and just by the U.S.'s failure to do a lot of things. But um, it certainly doesn't help liberal Democrats or just Democrats, small D Democrats anywhere if the US president is going around praising Duterte or praising other liberal populists and the fact that I don't think Biden is gonna be going around, you know, saying he wants praising like Duterte's extrajudicial killings or like praising other autocratic other autocratic leaders has some effect. Um, I think for the US itself, it really depends. I mean, I think um, there's some, <clears throat> it depends on factors that are probably don't have that much to do with what we're talking about, but like if they get the pandemic under control if, and the economy grows again, Biden will probably be relatively popular, but um, if Biden sort of is sort of a blah or mixed or failed president, it's just as likely that either, I don't think Trump himself will come back, he'll be quite old at that point, but you'll have a, a sort of more liberal or some other liberal person um, become president of the United States. So, and Biden would just be sort of like a brief interregnum. Mm. So, I mean, I think it's, 
it's it's overall positive um and it is certainly a positive for others sort of combating the liberal populists um that you don't have necessarily have the u.s president anymore going around um sort of serving as an example to other liberal leaders but um but you'd think it's just as likely that Biden is like president for four years and then someone else like Trump becomes president of the United States. So I don't, mm. I don't know. Yeah. So don't worry. Like that's been a common thread throughout the different episodes of this podcast that democracy is never owned. It's only rented, which means that you always need to be putting in the work to make sure that you get to keep it. So that is the end of our episode with Josh Karlancic. Josh, thank you so much for joining us. I know it's very late where you are, so thank you so much. Thank you. Yes, so now is the part of our program where I will give the floor to you to promote whatever you would like to share with our listeners all over Asia and maybe all over the world, like maybe a book (laughs) or a mixtape or a movie or a project, anything. Mixtapes or movies, but um, (laughs) I wish I did. I (laughs) mean... what I would put on a mixtape but um um I don't I mean I would encourage everyone to just go to our site is cfr.org I have a real if you look me up I have a a paper from just a couple weeks ago about that talks about um talks about Duterte and other illiberal populist leaders and sort of how they've in Southeast Asia and how they've um and South Asia Duterte, Jokowi, um, Modi and some others and how they've used COVID-19 to, to sort of restrict political space more and the, ne- the, the negative effects of that but yeah I don't have any, we don't put out a lot of mixtapes at CFR okay. yeah, yeah. if you manage to make one we'll find we'll find some reason to have you back on the podcast just so you can talk about your mixtape at the end so thank you so right. much for joining right. our program Josh and thank you to everybody listening my name is Cassie and I, this has been the Sock Dem Asia podcast if you've enjoyed this episode we really hope that you'll subscribe to this channel and please feel free to email us any of your comments or any of your suggestions for future episodes thank you and until the next episode and that was the podcast you can listen to us on anchor.fm Spotify, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, and Radio Public. You can learn more about Sockdem Asia and our latest events and activities by visiting our website at SockdemAsia.com or like and follow us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash SockdemAsia. If you wish to share your thoughts on this episode or past episodes or suggestions for future ones, just send us an email at secretariat at sockdemasia.com.